Blog Talk Radio. Tonight on Dr. Anonymous Show 162. That's right, 162 show there's kids. <laughs> Our guest coming up will be a family physician and my good friend, Dr. Danny Lewis uh, from Greenville, Tennessee. Our topic tonight. Uh, will be international medicine. That'll be one of our topics here. I've known Danny for a long time, and we'll talk about a lot of stuff tonight. Um, and uh, Danny and uh, some of his uh, colleagues went to uh, Central America recently on the trip, and I've always wanted to talk to somebody who has uh, done that before. So uh, we'll talk about that. And if you've been paying attention to my blog this week, I've been doing a lot of stuff recently, so I may get into some of that as well. All that and a lot more coming up on the Dr. Anonymous show starting right now. bringing you the best stories that medicine and social media have to offer. This is the Dr. Anonymous Show, live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm, of course, your favorite physician host. My name is Mike Sevilla, but my friends, like all of you out there, and I know who you are, you call me Dr. A, and you can always find me at DrAnonymous.com. That brings you the most current show schedule. We have some exciting shows coming up here in the month of May. And also some recent blog posts, and I've been writing a lot within the past week or so, so go ahead over there and check that out. And also some uh, TV interviews I've done with local TV news here. Very proud of that. You can check that out as well. You can also go to DrAnonymous.net and shout out to all 204 fans of the show or people that like the show or however Facebook does that now. <laughs> we'll also bring you some exclusive behind-the-scenes video of me doing this show. Very excited about that. And you can also go to DrAnonymous.org where you can subscribe to the show and also leave a comment over there. And you can also listen in real time to the show on your iPhone, BlackBerry, Palm Pre, and probably other mobile device. Just direct your mobile browser to, blog, to uh, blogtalkradio.com slash Dr. Anonymous. That brings you right to the page there. Uh, today is Thursday, May 6, 2010. Happy National Nurses Day to all the nurses out there and People that love them. I, that was kind of awkward. Uh, it is 9 p.m. Eastern time, and uh, at broadcast time here at Dr. Anonymous World Headquarters, it is 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Our guest coming up will be my friend and family physician, Dr. Daniel Lewis uh, from Greenville, Tennessee. I think I've known Danny for about 10 years now. Can you believe that? 
Man, I'm getting old. <laughs> One of our uh, topics tonight will be international medicine, but I've known him for a long time, so we may talk about just about anything. <laughs> uh, before we go to the break here, I did want to give a big shout-out to my friends who I saw last week in Kansas City. And uh, something really shocking to me in a good way uh, was that a lot of people came up to me uh, at this medical meeting. <laughs> they said, hey, Dr. Anonymous, love the blog, love the podcast and the video. So uh, thanks to everyone who checks out my stuff, all of the uh, new fans out there as well uh, from my meeting last week. So I really appreciate that. And I think I have an idea here. I might be, because uh, I, got, I got some contacts. I got uh, some contacts from last week. and. I've had this idea that I've been going to exploring a little bit more that to share with the world, and I'm serious about this, the story of family medicine, which is, I think is a compelling story, and I think I have a bunch of friends that are going to help me probably even coming on this show to talk about that. I've already had a couple people come on from show number 155, uh, Dr. Lucy Hornstein, who is a solo family doctor and also an author, so I encourage you to check out that show. And our good friend, Dr. Jerry Tolbert, from show number 156. He is a family medicine resident, uh, resident, and that is a good show, so check that out. And, of course, I purchased an iPad last weekend, and I may even talk about that as well. But first, <laughs> I do want to thank Blog Talk Radio for featuring the show again here this evening. And for those of you who are new to the show, welcome. I have been a social media hobbyist since 2005, and if you're curious, yes, I am a real physician. I am a family physician in full-time private practice here in beautiful northeastern Ohio. And if you're listening live, you can see my shining face there in the chat room. Just go to the top of the chat room and click on the webcam icon next to Dr. Anonymous, and you can see me do the show live right in front of your eyes, very exciting. And just to let you know that the audio stream and the video stream do not completely sync up, but uh, you'll get the idea. And I do want to give a big shout-out to people in the chat room here before uh, before we go to the break. I want to give a big shout-out to uh, Greg Friesen there and uh, Ramona and J-Man, and we also have a guest. And uh, if you are waiting to get into the chat room uh, just uh, wait a little bit longer because it, it can, can be a little bit more frustrating trying to get in here. And, yes, there have people just uh, popped in right now. David Harlow, our good friend Kat, Landy Lowdown, and Dr. Synonymous. So if you are in the queue waiting to get here in the chat room, I know you're coming in, so uh, don't worry about that. So I will take my break. And then after the break, our good friend Dr. Danny Lewis will be here. You're listening to the Dr. Anonymous Show a proud member of the Family Medicine Education Consortium. That's right. Uh, you can get there by going to fmec.net. And also a proud member of the Better Health Network at getbetterhealth.com. And also a member of the ProMed Network of Podcast. You can get there by going to promednetwork.com. And we'll be right back.
ahead, kids. Lowering your blood pressure one point at a time. This is the Dr. Anonymous Show live on the Blog Talk Radio Network. And on the line we have with us right now my good friend from uh, Greenville, Tennessee, Dr. Danny Lewis. Danny, welcome to the show. It's great to, great to, great to hear you. Hey, great to see you, Dr. A. So uh, how, how are you doing here this evening? I'm doing fine. We uh, I'm on my way back from a local uh, our local chapter of the Tennessee Academy of Medical Physicians meeting, and we had a great meeting with several medical students there that were really excited about family medicine, and it was really energizing experience. So that's I'm great. That's great. That. Oh, I, I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you taking the time there. And uh, yeah, before we get started here, uh, maybe just describe a little bit uh, about your meeting there tonight. It sounded like it was uh, a bunch of family docs, and uh, there were some medical students there, and probably just uh, talking about just some current events or uh, what was kind of on the agenda for the evening there. Well, we are. It was a very, uh, very entertaining meeting. It, it was our local chapter meeting of our local. Uh, State chapter of the Academy of Family Physicians. Tonight we talked about health care reform. We had a two presenters, one who is a local uh, provider here who has taken a real interest in the health care reform debate. He gave a lot of great information about the, what contained in the law and the timeline which it will be laid out. And then we had Dr. Reed Blackwelder, who's a local physician here in Northeast Tennessee, who's also a member of the American Academy of Family Physicians Board of Directors who spoke a lot about the recent board meeting that the board had and some of their take on the health or national health care reform laws. Um, it was an action-packed meeting with a lot of information. Some of it we don't understand all the details of, but I really took a sense of um, inspiration and from and potential for the great things that could happen. The students all were there seemed very excited. They were enraptured by the presentation and had a lot of great questions to ask, so... I'm really excited about what the future holds um, with some of the possibilities that hopefully will come for the future of family medicine that could come from this bill. Great, great. And, and we may get get into that uh, a little bit uh, later because um, I was at a, a meeting last week, too, which you're familiar with. Uh, so we may talk a little bit about advocacy here for our specialty, but uh, we'll kind of start real general here. You know, we, you and I have known each other for a, a long time, um, and I'm sorry right. for you for that. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Uh, but uh, maybe just share with our audience here uh, just, uh, you know, how, uh, how you came to uh, uh, select a medicine as, uh, a, as, a, uh, uh, as a calling for you, and specifically family medicine. What draws you to that, and, and what's, um, what about family medicine, you know, that you love, um, and that you tell medic students why you love this specialty. Sure. Uh, I was very young when I first remember saying I wanted to be a physician. Uh, that's the first time I remember my family telling me I said that I was around six years old. When I thought of what a physician was at that time, then I thought of my family physician, the gentleman, you know, the provider who saw me, he saw me for anything that I could come in for, whether it be an illness or an injury or for my well child exam. And he was the only physician that I knew and the only concept I had of medicine for a long time. As I got into high school and 
college, I began to learn a little bit more about some of the different subspecialties, but still knew that I had a heart for family medicine or primary care. Uh, medical school was, a, of course, the first step to take towards that. While I was there, I got involved with the American Academy of Family Physicians, went out to Kansas City for the National Conference for Family Medicine, residents medical students, met folks like you there, and uh, really cemented my choice of going to be a family physician early in my second year of medical school, and uh, pursued that dream, and now roughly two years into practice, and I've been regretted the decision plus. Uh, one of the things that drew me to family medicine in general was that there were no uh, limits on what I could do. There, every other field of medicine in some form or fashion has some sort of limitation or discrimination against what you can see. Uh, if you're not female, you can't go to an OBGYN. If you're over the age of 18, you can't be a pediatrician. If you don't have a bone problem or a muscle problem, you can't be an orthopedist. But family medicine doesn't have any of those artificial limits. And I never, every time I go to the office, I never know what that what the door will bring in, and it's part of the excitement to me. Great, great. Um, yeah, I mean, and I know you take this for forever, <laughs> but uh, uh, and we probably will after at, after our main topic here. Um, uh, the, the the reason I wanted to ask you on the show here tonight is uh, I. I think it was about a month ago where I saw on your Facebook page uh, where uh, you and some of your colleagues uh, went on a missionary trip. I believe it was to uh, Central America to do, to do some work uh, down there. Um, I guess my next question for you is: uh, Have you done any? Did did you do any kind of international medicine experience uh, before this? And, and how did you find out about this experience? And how was everything set up there for you? This experience was actually my second um, medical mission trip. I went to residency in a, a program in South Carolina, Greenwood, South Carolina, with self-regional health care. One of the uh, draws that I had to that program was that they helped to sponsor you with um, medical mission work while you're in residency. I'm giving you time off for that and also the funds to apply for a trip. So my first trip actually was as a second-year resident. and. Uh, with work and schedules and having a family, I haven't been able to go back until this year. So my first trip was to Peru, and then this trip was to Guatemala. I went through an organization called Volunteers of Medical Missions, which I um, was introduced to while I was in residency. It's a um, local group out of South Carolina that takes about 17 to 20 trips a year, different places around the world, to provide short-term medical missions services to those countries. And, and uh, how, uh, how, uh, how big of a group did you bring with you? Was it just docs? Was it uh, nursing staff? Was it other type of staff? Uh, and, and how long were you there for? The group size is very, our group actually was 14 uh, in this group. That was six physicians and five nurses. We had three other uh, individuals, one of whom was a librarian one of whom was a teacher and one of whom was a retired business um, woman. So one great thing about these groups is that they do have a medical bent to them, but we bring other individuals as well, um, even without any medical training, and there are different roles that they can fill. We went, we left on a Saturday and went down on March 20th, and we returned back the next Saturday on March 27th. So we were in the country of Guatemala for one week. Wow, huh. 
And uh, and so so before you got there, did, did you have? And I you obviously talked to some people about it, but uh, uh, what were your kind of your expectations? You know that when you got there, did you kind of have a picture of what you were getting into, or or not really not really knowing anything? Well, the interesting thing about uh, any type of medical mission trip or any kind of international trip is, while you might have a general idea of the way things are hopefully going to go, um, faith has a way of us making those work differently. Um, this was my second trip, and so I knew the general outline, outline of the trip for having talked to the trip leaders that had been before would be that we would go to different areas within the country and hold medical clinics in different spots. Um, we had plans to go from sea level, from a small island in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Guatemala, all the way up to the mountain of Pichaba, which is a, a former volcano that's 9,500 feet in elevation. Um, one thing that happened when we first arrived, however, was that some of the rules in Guatemala had changed, and the customs officials confiscated the medicines that we brought with us to do our medical clinics on our first day and would not give them back without us paying a substantial tax for the American value of the medications. Wow. Huh. So did, did that really kind of hinder, you know, some of the things that you were trying to do there, or? It did. We, um, as I mentioned, we had plans to do five different clinics in five different locations. We had to go through several channels, uh, both through the, the government of Guatemala and also through some, through a lawyer um, to get our medications released from the government. We ended up paying uh, some portion of tax on the medication as well as some, uh, shall we say, under the table money so that our medication could be released in a timely manner. We actually lost two days uh, that we planned to do a clinic um, and so ended up only being able to do three full clinics. One of the clinic locations that we had we actually, through faith and through faith, found that they actually had a supply of medications. So we were able to go to that site and do a somewhat truncated clinic, not as large as we hoped to do, but we're able to see several children in the orphanage there and help provide some medical care for them. So we ended up doing about three and a half clinics as opposed to the five that we wanted to do. We ended up seeing approximately a thousand patients over the course of three and a half days, where our goal was to see about 1,505. So. We still were able to do, have a fair amount of success, but we were somewhat limited in what we were able to do. So can you kind of uh, maybe paint a little picture as far as, you know, what kind of conditions that you were in as far as the clicks, um, you know, for the listeners as far as, you know, what was it a big facility? Was it an open-type air facility? What was the weather like? Um, was there running water? Uh, there's all kinds of things that people think about in, in this type of clinic. If you can kind of describe specifically what, what, what type of situation you were in, just so we can get a better picture of it. Sure, that's fine. We, uh, let's start with our living conditions. We actually were able to uh, reside in a house there outside Guatemala City, about an hour outside. It was um, a very nice house. There were several bedrooms. We had um, cots to sleep on, which were quite comfortable. There was uh, running water, although that water is supplied on a sporadic basis by the city. So actually the water was stored in a well that was connected to a water hose, connected to an open faucet. And when the city would turn on the water, the water would dip into the well. Uh, on day two, we actually had a uh, 
problem with some mud getting in the water, and we had to dump out all the water we had on our well. And so for a short period of time, we did not have any water. We had to wait until that was run. But our living facilities were you know, quite nice. We were you know, in a enclosed facility. We weren't out in the open air. The clinics that we staffed were actually, uh, they were various. The short day I mentioned that one of the nursing homes, or I'm, not, I'm sorry, one of the orphanages, uh, which is called Casa Shalom, and is outside of Guatemala City, actually has a small medical clinic there. So we actually had three rooms that were stocked with otoscopes and ophthalmoscopes and tables and had a small pharmacy there. The orphanage does not currently have a provider providing the services there, so we're able to do the services there. However, our second phase clinic was held in a church, which was a large concrete open-air building with a roof, and we just set up with tables and cots and uh, chairs. We had a central staging area for our pharmacy and for injections. So we were just spread throughout the concrete building, and the uh, patients waited in the pews while they were waiting to be seen. We had a facility, as I mentioned, on the beach on the island of El Chico, which is in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Guatemala. That was held in the open air under a thatched up roof with the Pacific Ocean behind us and an out ocean breeze. That was a neat experience. Excuse me. And then we also had a clinic you know, in Pichaba, which was held in a school office, in a school building, where, <laughs> where we were in different school rooms and we hosted our, our pharmacy out of one of the large classrooms. In that facility, we were setting in a person's second grade desk and seeing our patients there who to use the translators as well. Mm, wow. So I, I guess, um, so what kind, I mean, I, I would imagine that it's any kind of cases uh, came in. Um, um, are you able to share as far as anything that you recall? I mean, I, well, I, I guess I guess what I want, is, what I want to ask is, um, I mean, you sound like you, you saw a lot of kids. Um, you know, what, what kind of cases, uh, uh, pediatric cases, or what, what kind of things that did you see when you were there? Well, we saw a, a, a lot of children. Uh, very often, the, par the parents would bring in the children to be seen, and sometimes, almost as an afterthought, they would want to be seen as well. The concern often was for the children. Parasitic infections were obviously rampant throughout the country. Uh, in a lot of these villages, people would scavenge for food through uh, refuge or through ways. A lot of times, the food is cooked on open-air grills, which are very hot. There's not a lot of electricity or of course, so they're often cooked over open fires. Um, every child that we saw, for the most part, was dealing with a small degree of malnutrition. We take enough wording medication or parasitic infections to treat everybody there, and we also take enough vitamins to give everybody at least a 30-day supply of vitamins, hopefully it's all 10 to children. So we often would see that. We saw a lot of uh, infections, such as you know, bronchitis, pneumonia, otitis, Thankfully, we didn't see a lot of children on this trip that were very ill, although on past trips we've had children that were, children that were extremely dehydrated and um, somebody even after required surgery or further treatment. But we saw a lot of, you know, kind of bread and butter, kind of medicine things from uh, otitis infections and pneumonia to, but also treating the parasitic infections for most of the children as well. Also, there were some children there who were overweight, one of whom uh, who I believe was pre-diabetic, I mean, there wasn't a lot of treatment we were able to give him, but I believe that was his primary concern. 
so we were able to see a lot of things. We also saw, you know, several stigmata in either young adults or in children of diseases that in this country we now consider to be eradicated. I saw a young lady in her 20s who had scars for her viola. She had a case of dermal measles when she was a child. And um, that was actually my first experience seeing a case of rubiola. That was very interesting as well. So, so some stuff that um, you, know, you probably have never seen or have only seen uh, in a textbook or on a board exam question, um, you actually sure. saw right there in front of you. Yes. We saw a, I remember an elderly lady in particular who had a case of elephantitis and chronic lymphatitis in her lower extremity. She had a parasitic infection which caused damage to her capillary and lymphatic system. And her right leg was about three times the size of her left. And I had never seen an actual case of elephantitis until that time. Uh, that was very interesting. We also had a elderly lady who unfortunately had a approximately six-inch fungating breast cancer that had erupted through the skin and was bleeding. Uh, she was unfortunately beyond any course of treatment that we would be able to offer her there. But you sometimes do get to see things that are uh, you've never seen before in a textbook or probably things that you hope you won't see in the United States. Wow, huh. So was it uh, was it hot and humid there? Was it rainy there? What was kind of the weather like when you were there for that week? Well, we were in the dry season in Guatemala. Uh, it was there was no rain in sight. Most mornings are pretty pleasant, although most of the time, even at the end of March, most of the mid afternoon temperatures would get up to be in the high 80s to uh, low 90s. Uh, there is no there is very little breeze in several of the places that we were. So. The concrete building in uh, San Carlos was actually probably one of the hottest we were as far as inside the building. It was probably 95 to 100 degrees as far as inside the building there. Uh, we had lots of bottled water, lots of things to drink and snack on while we were there. At El Chico, um, at sea level, it was probably 85 or so, but we had the ocean breeze from the Pacific Ocean. Then we went to Pichaba. The next day, up at almost 10,000 feet elevation, we actually wore coats because it was low 60s when we first arrived, although it did warm up to probably the mid-70s that day. Huh. So uh, so what was the travel time? Like, how long did it get from home to Guatemala? And what was that like? Um, you know, obviously, it's the time on a plane and stuff, but how long was it from when you landed there to you know, where you were staying or where the clinics were? Sure. We tried to reach out to the clinics to a somewhat remote area. Um, we landed in Guatemala City. It was not a four-hour flight from Charlotte, North Carolina, to Guatemala City when we landed. Our the facility we stayed at in uh, our home was about an hour outside of Guatemala City. The host there had a very nice bus for us, so we had a nice passenger bus to travel in. Our other clinics varied anywhere from 30 minutes away. Um, we spent our first couple of nights, I mentioned at the facility there, uh, at our home, and then we actually spent a couple of nights in a hotel in a town called Reno Leal, which was a little closer to the Pacific side. That was about two hours away, about three hours away from Guatemala City. And we went out to El Chico. It was about a two and a half hour bus ride. Um, 
probably an hour and 45 minutes of that on a dirt road uh, with not much uh, padding in the seats and a lot of jostling there. We then spent about 15 to 20 minutes on a boat traveling out to the island. So that was probably our biggest travel day. It was about three hours there and back uh, each way. So we spent about six hours in the bank and probably five and a half hours on the road. So that made for a pretty long day. And when we went back to the hotel, we had a hotel that had a water slide and an outdoor pool, so we made sure to take advantage of that. Hmm. We have uh, we have a few questions from our uh, live chat room here. That's why I love this show. Uh, so the, a couple of questions are: so what uh, what piece of uh, medical equipment did you find uh, most useful, and uh, is is there a piece of medical equipment that you wish you would have brought or you're going to bring next time that uh, you would have found helpful? You know, I I would say he took some of our own basic equipment. I had my stethoscope, my otoscope, my thalloscope. I also had my blood pressure cuff. Um, because I do sports medicine as well, I took a lot of injection supplies with me. The, probably the most important piece of medical equipment we had was just our hands. There's a lot more alive on your physical exam skills there than I think even we use in the United States. It was certainly somewhat inspiring uh, to get a chance just to call things for cut things and not have an x-ray but have to go off and find out paragnosticated to determine how to treat the patient. We did also take a portable ultrasound machine, and that was a great piece of equipment to have with us. Um, particularly for the obstetrics, we were able to um, let several of the ladies there who were pregnant see pictures of their babies. Many of them had never seen an ultrasound picture of any child that they've had. That was really a great experience and a great thing to share with them. We also were able to use it to diagnose some you know, benign fibroids and uterine tumors. If there's one piece of equipment I wish we had, I wish I could have taken something like an iStat or a portable electrolyte machine. We did have a finger stick blood sugar, and we were able to treat some patients with diabetes, diagnose a few cases of diabetes elderly patients. But I'd love to have been able to get basic chemistries or hemoglobin things that you could do through a machine like an iStat. So that's a machine that I want to encourage the organization to purchase in the future so that we can have that available. That's a great question. Um, and another question is: So, so what, what what language uh, do they speak there? Did did you did you know a little bit of the language, or did you rely a lot on the interpreters that were there? The primary language in Guatemala is Spanish, and I know un poquito español, so I could say hello, goodbye, and thank you, and that was about it, as well as where is the bathroom. So we did rely a lot on our interpreters. One thing that was really interesting about this trip and. The one thing that's varied from one place to another is, is that um, there are other local dialects in Guatemala. In particular, there are uh, some descendants of the Mayans that are still in Guatemala. So one of our clinics that we did on the mountaintop of Pichaba actually had primarily the Quechicol Indians. And they actually speak their own language called Quechicol. So on that day, in particular, in we had to go from English to Spanish to the use of interpreter, from Spanish to Ketchikal to the patient, and then back from the patient who spoke Ketchikal to Spanish to English. And that was a very interesting experience. I don't know what to relate Ketchikal to, except that I think it has some Far Eastern dialect to it, because there are a lot, of, a lot of clicks and pops and sounds that they made. So it was incredibly difficult to understand, and I had no clue as to what the patients were saying until it was interpreted back to me. 
Wow. Huh. Uh, if you're just joining us, so welcome to the uh, Dr. Anonymous show. Our guest on the line here is uh, my good friend, uh, family physician, Dr. Danny Lewis uh, from Tennessee. He's talking about his recent uh, trip to uh, Guatemala. It's a fascinating story. Um, so this is the second time that, that, that you've had a trip like this. Is that right? Yes. The first trip I took to Lima, Peru, probably five years ago. And uh, how, how was that different than uh, than this trip here? Well, the, certainly there were differences in the culture. Uh, again, we saw a lot of the same conditions, a lot of the same things. When we went to Peru, it was a lot of residency. I went with several of my residency classmates, and I knew most everybody on the trip. On this trip, I knew uh, the leader of the trip, because he was also involved in residency education in South Carolina. Uh, but I had not met any of the other members of the trip. So the first trip I probably was familiar with 10 out of 12 uh, teammates, whereas this trip I knew one of 14 before I went. Uh, and that was a great experience to get to meet those new individuals and to deal with them. On the first trip I was a resident, so I was still in learning and still in that part of my education. And while certainly I'm still learning in countries like that, there was a lot that I wasn't aware of. This was my first trip as kind of an attending position, and we had three or four resident positions that I was able to mentor and help do some particular outpatient some joint injection skills, and we did some injections, orthopedic evaluations, things that more and less field scalable medicine that they hadn't had much of a chance to experience yet. So that was the difference. Another big difference was just that really on the first trip there were no complications. We got our medicines in and out of the country well, were able to use them all, had no glitches, whereas on this trip there were the glitches with the medications, um, there were the glitches with the running water that we talked about. Also, while we were there, there was actually a riot in Guatemala City that resulted in the lockdown of Guatemala City. We weren't in the city at the time, but they blocked the roads that we were able to do. There actually were protests and fires, and the Guatemala government, the military, was called out to help swell uh, that riot. So while we weren't involved in it, itself, it did limit some of our uh, transportation and some of the things we were able to do that day. So this trip had a few more complications to it, but it turned out to be a great experience, and I actually can't wait to go back. Uh, there's a question in the chat room uh, as far as um, um, any kind of discussion uh, with the group or maybe the people there with non-traditional Western medicine or what we would call alternative medicine or or herbalist type of things. Uh, did any of that uh, discussion came up in your experience there? Sure, there was some of that discussion experience. For the most part, the providers that were there with us were trained allopathically um, and were more traditional providers. Um, certainly, in those cultures, there is a fair amount of you know, home remedies or uh, anything that they can try to do to provide service. Most of these folks will not see a health care provider, even if they're in the city and available because of the cost that it takes for them. Um, not as much in Guatemala, but in Peru, there were open-air pharmacies on the street, so patients could walk in and purchase medications without any type of prescription. We actually did that while we were there because we ran low on our supply of Cipro. So we went to the pharmacy and bought 100 Cipro tablets for about four American dollars and used while we were there. So there is a fair amount in some of these countries of self-medication and take-care medication. 
there's certainly also a lot of home remedies and things that were provided by the local elders and things there in the community that we dealt with. Um, we have certainly had providers in the past who had some training in, whether it be clergy uh, techniques or acupuncture or herbal medicine, and they're certainly allowed to share that with the patients as well. On this particular trip, we didn't have as much of that, but we did have to deal a lot with some of the local remedies and local treatments that were done by the local elders there in the community. Um, and it, I guess as far as for yourself getting ready for this trip, uh, um, did you have to take, like, uh, you know, immunizations or other types of travel type of preparations or, you know, you, you took some Cipro with you or that type of thing, anticipating some, uh, um, you know, I guess some uh, infections and that type of thing for international travel. Sure. Well, it's interesting because I did have some Cipro with me. It was about five years old and was not in day, so thankfully I didn't have to use it. Uh, but we did have Cipro and things like that. As far as preparations for this trip, uh, the CDC gives some great recommendations for wherever you're going as to what you might need. For the region of Guatemala we went to, there weren't many uh, vaccinations or things that were required. Um, there was no yellow fever vaccination, for example. Hepatitis A vaccine was recommended but was not required, and I actually did take a hepatitis uh, A vaccine. I had one previously, but I checked some tires. I wasn't amused, but I took another one in preparation for this trip. Uh, I had my oral typhoid vaccine before I went to Peru, and that was still up to date through this year, so I didn't have to redo that. Uh, Guatemala, the portion of Guatemala we went to, does have uh, incidents of malaria, so we did have to take chloroquine prophylaxis. So I started taking chloroquine a week before my trip, and then finished my chloroquine uh, four weeks after I returned. I took the last one of those last week, actually. And so that was something else that we did have to do. Otherwise, it was just a lot of hygiene in the country. One general rule of travel medicine is that you can't boil it or feel it or uncap it. You don't drink it or eat it. So we were just very careful about making sure we didn't brush our teeth even with the tap water. We used bottled water that we had for that. Um, there were lots of street vendors selling food on the side of the street, some of which looked delicious. And fresh mangoes, star fruit that were dipped in cinnamon and things, but we didn't partake in any of that. Um, or I think that would have been a quick trip to some cowards diarrhea and use of that to that may not have been good for me. Um, there's a question in the chat room about receiving uh, uh, prescriptions off the shelf. I mean, you mentioned that already, but uh, the question is, are, are people able to, to receive uh, narcotic medicines uh, um, without a prescription where you were at? No, where I was, I didn't see any use of narcotics as far as in the, uh, in the country. What was interesting was, was one of the reasons why I think our medicines were so scrutinized was that there had been a recent increase of people bringing pseudofed or pseudofed compounds into the country to make methamphetamine. They were a lot of questions asked about whether any of our medicines contained pseudofed or pseudofedrin. So there was a real concern about that. Even in Peru, I didn't see anybody able to purchase narcotics over the counter. One of my bigger fears was their ability to purchase any antibiotics over the counter. And so being able to use antibiotics for inappropriate purposes or not taking it properly or taking it in proper duration. And there were some, uh, there's still some, I saw a bag in Guatemala. Like I said, that you could walk in and buy the generic form of ciprofloxacin or augmentin or anything else off the counter and use that perhaps inappropriately. Hmm. Wow. Um, 
So it so sounds like it was it was a very uh, very beneficial experience to you. Is this uh, just something you're going to be uh, doing more often uh, when you can? I certainly hope so. Um, as I said before, I really enjoyed my first trip. I got to go on five years ago because of some of my involvement with the AAST and with the board of directors and things. I, my travel is limited for a year, and then I spent a year in fellowship and a year of kind of building a family. So. Well, I hope to just be a one to two year Sojourn G trip turned more into, um, you know, five years. I hope not to have that happen again. I hope to be able to go at least every other year on a trip. Um, I'm hoping to actually spend the next trip as kind of a co-leader of the trip so that perhaps in the future I can lead some trips to different places. And, um, who knows, next year I think the same organization I've won at it on the start of the five-year series of trips to Haiti. So I'm about to go to Haiti on the next trip, maybe next spring. Yeah, I know. Uh, um, I've been kind of following our our good friend uh, uh, Deb Clements from uh, uh, from Kansas yeah. City area, and she she's in uh, Haiti right now, and she's been uh, just. Uh, it's one one great thing about Facebook is she's been uh, posting some pictures, and uh, when she gets back, I, I'll, uh, I'm probably going to send her a message and say, hey, you know, come on the show and talk about your experience. Um, in Haiti, and uh, just from her pictures, um, and she's also been writing some little um, uh, blog uh, summaries on her Facebook page. Uh, it's a fascinating experience bringing us there, uh, but I'd love yes, to bring I've it on the show. And, well. and, yeah, yeah. So well, that, that's one of the great things about social media is that we can we can follow these people, people that we know, um, and we would not find out any any way else. So um, uh, so yeah, I, I, this is something I would I, I really want to do is, is really to share the. The stories of family docs, uh, especially people that I know and, and I've known for a long time, to um, uh, to share their stories here. So this is uh, people that do international medicine has always been kind of fascinating to me. Well, we'll have to get you down and get you on a trip uh, next time I'm late. One, I have to make sure you know you have to pack up the Dr. Mama show and take it overseas. <laughs> yeah, they'll probably confiscate all my stuff because they're jealous of like my iPad or something. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I, I've been following your uh, iPad experience, and I'm jealous. So, um, so before I let you go, I, I did I want to talk a little bit about your practice situation um, at home there in Greenville. Oh, oh, before I want to talk about that, um, you know, you're in Tennessee there, and um, you know, there's been a lot of flooding down there in that area. And I don't know if you talked about that in your meeting there tonight, um, as far as you know, what the uh, you know what, what what the weather situation is down there, and uh, as far as had, did anybody at the meeting or anybody at home has talked about you know some of the efforts that they're trying to do, especially I, I believe it's the Nashville area that's been really hit by all that yeah. flooding. Yeah, it really was quite extensive, and more uh, more so I think than a lot of folks should realize initially. Um, Tennessee is a long state; it's fairly narrow, but it's a long state. It's about as long as we get from. One of the things the other is for me to drive from Greenville to New York City. But um, the flooding is primarily in Middle Tennessee and the national area, which is around the capital and uh, the state center. There are a lot of homes that are still having standing water in them. There's been pretty bad countries that have their standing water in the Grand Old Offering. That's uh, caused a lot of damage and a lot of trouble there. It's really quite a, uh, quite a just kind of scary situation. There has been uh, a break in the weather over the last week, so a lot of that has receded, but there's supposed to be more rain this, uh, this week. 
I'm following that kind of closely because I'm going to Nashville on Monday next week to serve as the doctor of the day for the legislature in uh, Nashville. That's something that our state chapter of the Tennessee Academy of Physicians does every year and kind of provides some medical service for the folks in the legislature. My date scheduled for that is next Tuesday. So um, I talked to our chapter exec last week, and the water got as high as 5th Avenue in Nashville. The legislature sits on 7th Avenue, and that's where my hotel is. So it looks like we'll be okay from that standpoint. But there still are a lot of hope and actually a lot of prayers that are probably needed for the folks in Nashville this week. There are a lot of individuals that are still without water and without a lot of basic necessities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that's been, uh, you know, I, I've only been following, you know, through the news and things. But uh, you know, obviously, you're very, you're closer to it, and uh, you know, there's been local efforts, I would imagine, to, you know, try to, you know, help those people down there. And uh, it's just tragic. Yeah, it's really been, it's been an eye-opening experience. There are portions, not to compare this to Hurricane Katrina at all, because I don't think the same number of people were affected, but. There are areas of Nashville that are as far underwater as New Orleans was during Hurricane Katrina. Wow. Huh. Um, so before I let you go tonight, I did want you to talk a little bit about your practice, your practice uh, situation. Um, and if I recall correctly, I mean you're doing you're doing sports medicine in your practice, in your family medicine practice. And um, is, uh, do I remember right? You, you took a fellowship uh, following um, um, residency, and, and, and how was that? And after my residency, I did a year of uh, primary care sports medicine fellowship at Wake Forest University, Go Deke. Um, it was a great experience. We spent a lot of time taking care of the Wake Forest University sports teams as well as several other teams in the area while continuing our primary care training and our continuity care. Uh, I, I'm very much in love with family medicine and still am. So my goal of that was never to join an orthopedic clinic on its own or uh, get away from family medicine, I wanted to join a practice where I would be able to not only practice both forms of medicine, but also do some education and some teaching. So after I finished my fellowship, I found this small rural location in Tennessee, about an hour away from my hometown, that has enabled me to do about 75% of my time in my family medicine clinic, where I have eight partners, three of whom have been practicing for over four years in the same town. And then I do 25% of my time in a sports medicine clinic that I started in conjunction with the orthopedist that was here in town. So I get a little bit of both worlds. I still get to do the, my primary love, which is family medicine, but I get to do some sports medicine as well. I take care of our local small college, Sutton College, as well as several of the high school teams in town. So that's really been a blessing. It's something I've been able to enjoy doing. And also get to teach students about family medicine and the sports medicine that gets come out since I'm with me. Wow, that's great. That's great. Um, so yeah, so I was, uh, um, and uh, I guess in our closing minutes here, we can, we can just kind of talk, you know, just really, uh, talk up, uh, family medicine here because, uh, um, we've been friends for a long time and, uh, I know that, uh, um, this would be a great kind of, uh, brainstorming session as far as, uh, you know, what, what we can do, what I can do, because I, I, I see a, a lot of, a lot of people in, in social media, um, you know, really carrying the flag for, you know, whatever industry they're in, whether, you know, they're in uh, yeah. emergency medicine or nurses or whatever, but um, I don't really see a lot of, uh, you know, family medicine docs out there doing this. And uh, um, right. and, and uh, I was I was at a meeting last week, and, you know, as you know, it was a national uh, 
uh, Conference of Special Constituencies, our good friends at AEFP there, and, and just getting out there and talking with some of our colleagues, um, because family medicine is such a, a wide breadth of stories out there. There's not one way to do it. There's a lot of different ways to, to practice this family medicine, and, and uh, there's got to be a way where we can share these stories with everybody, including the general public, and saying, hey, you know, this is what we do, and um, I'm just trying to think of the best way to kind of do that. Yeah, well, you know, and I, I'm really excited. I've enjoyed, you know, following your blog and following along with some of the podcasts, which I've started doing more recently, and seeing some of your videos. I was going to tell you, I think maybe Dr. A, Dr. A now, and for Dr. Autism, after your nice little video clip that I saw on the news up there in Ohio, so that was a great job. And you know, <laughs> folks, like you, folks like you have always been a, a mentor to me. We've had a lot of experiences of mentorship over the years on several of our trips, and you were know, one of the inspirations for me for doing what I do now and coming into family medicine. Doesn't that make you feel old? <laughs> I do. I do. I do. And, and, and probably, probably hanging out with some of those students tonight. You're like, hey, man, I'm, I'm like, a, I'm like, an, you know, these people are calling you an attending physician now. You're not a resident anymore. You're not a med student, and you're just like one of the. Well, they're calling you one of, one of the big docs, and I'm like, oh man, I'm really old now. <laughs> so the students that we used to have now are the residents running the Congress. So. It's uh, pretty, it's a, kind of a neat continuum to see. But I do think there's a, a really big uh, role, possibly, for the social media and things. I think that, I say, as you're aware, there's several, maybe, discussions, things have to be had, obviously, about HIPAA and privacy and those things. But I believe there's more and more students that are reaching out to things like Facebook and Twitter and uh, some of the other forums and the podcast and iTunes and I think it's a great way to reach out to some of those in a non-traditional way of the, really the depth and the breadth of what you can do in family medicine and the great experiences you can have there. And, you know, it's always folks like you that are on the cutting edge doing that and helps lead us in that way. So I'm really excited to, to see what the future holds in that regard. And we'll be interested in taking I haven't had time really to do much of it myself, but it's probably interesting things I'd like to absolutely take part of in the future as well. So I salute you for doing what you're doing. Oh yeah, yeah, and I, and you know our our good friend uh, Jerry Tolbert was on the show here, and we talked a bunch about this. And uh, oh, I can't imagine um, that. You know, hey, I... Jerry, talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's why I love this because it's just like you know we 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 went through an hour and a half, and uh, we even hardly scratched the surface. So that's that's what's uh, that's, that's what's right. good about this. Um, so yeah, I think uh, and I'll definitely be following up with you after the show here, as far as you know how we can get the word out here more more about you know what we do and uh, how cool it is, and because sure. uh, everyone else is doing it, um, I think uh, I think we should do it too and get the word out there, you know, to the public and to everybody and saying, hey, you know, we're we're cool, don't uh, you know, don't don't uh, don't forget about us, you know, I mean, uh, and uh, it, it was it was funny, and I know that you. Um, uh, I know you would really appreciate this, Danny, is that, uh, you know, there's that resolution. There's that uh, resolution every year that comes through uh, whatever meeting you're at as far as that family medicine TV show. <laughs> as far That's as right. port- portraying, uh, portraying family medicine in an ER-type standpoint or whatever. And that came through again, and I know you would appreciate that, but uh, it's just it's, it's right. kind of interesting uh, uh, coming through well, again. We need somebody to write the Dr. Anonymous pilot show here so that, you know, we can get you on the big screen. I think it's a great. <laughs> I think it's a great thought, but it'd be so difficult to really, you know, show what we do in that realm and to do it in a way that's not stylized. 
every time somebody asks me that question, I always have patients or students always ask, so what medical show is the most like what it's like in real life? Is it ER or is it, you know, is it Grey's Anatomy or private practice? My answer actually usually is that it's scrubs, at least in residency education. But, uh, it, you know, everybody misses the days of Marcus Welby, but <laughs> I think that would be a difficult sell to, to really show what we do in a, in a TV format. I'm, more, I'm very interested in certainly knowing having students in residence see what it's like for folks like you and I in private practice outside of the academic health centers because I'm sure that you, I haven't asked you this, but I probably would bet that you probably feel also that, you know, the rewards of things that come from private practice and the things that we can see and do in a community are so much greater than what you often appreciate in an academic center where you're surrounded by so many specialists. And I'm in a town where I don't have a lot of specialists by disposal and I have to really do the depth of breadth of family medicine. That really is a part rewarding part of my job. Yeah, yeah, and I think what really was really appealing with those type of shows is, you know, it's a little bit of the action, but it's, it's uh, and of course a little bit of the relationship, sex, whatever. But when it really comes down to it, those those shows, it really comes down to the storyline and what the stories are. And uh, I think family medicine has a lot of stories to tell. And I think with social media now is that you don't need a television studio. You don't need Hollywood. You don't need New York to do this. You can get just some guy with a video video camera and YouTube, and you can, you can tell a story. You can tell a story right. with a podcast. You can tell a story with a blog. So, you know, you don't really need, you know, all this exposure. I mean, you know, a little viral video on YouTube can get 10 million hits, and that's better oh, than I any agree. kind of TV show. So, I mean, that's I, I think it's really the ankle. Yes. Right, right. I agree, and I think that you know that maybe that there's a, a place for episodes or you know academic centers to you know, to do some of those things, or like you say, even folks like yourself to put out the podcast out there, spread the word of family medicine and everything that we do, and you know it's a untapped resource. I think that we really could reach out to. Maybe we could the authors of that resolution to actually just put a viral video on YouTube, talk about their day, and I bet you they could get a lot broader outreach than they could with the resolution. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, it's, uh, that, 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 that's what we need to do. So, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 think that, I think I'll add that to my millions and millions of lists that I'm going to be doing. Uh, but uh, uh, I think that's something that, uh, that we need to do and, and get that story out there. That'd be great. All right. So in our closing moments here, you know, Danny, I want to thank you for uh, for being on the show here. Um, I want to thank you for sharing your story. Um, it is a fascinating story, and, and I'm hoping to bring more family docs on the show here to share whatever story they would like. Uh, your story of, of international medicine and what your experience was was very fascinating. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion in the chat room here, um, and I appreciate the questions from the chat room. Um, and uh, I'm definitely going to bring you back. I'm definitely going to follow up with you because because we we have to we have to carry the flag here for family medicine because because uh, if you and I don't do it, then, then no one else would do it. Well, I think that's right, and I do think you know, no matter what your thoughts are on the healthcare reform and all the things that came out, I think there's still a huge amount of questions to be answered. I think it's going to require people like you and I and anyone else involved in family medicine to be involved first of all because they can help to set some of that agenda. But I've, you know, I've really been somewhat inspired over the last few months to hear more and more talk about the importance of primary care as the cornerstone of medicine in this country and 
and particularly the importance of family medicine, because you and I know that they're, we carry the brunt of primary care in, the, in this country, and I've been really, really inspired to hear some of the thoughts of the value that we bring to the system and those things, and if, as we continue to do that, we need more and more folks that are willing to follow that path and able to do that, so we need to be reaching out to the residents and the students and the college students that are going into medical school to make sure we get those stories out there. That's where I think things like your show are a great addition. I thank you so much for letting me come on. It's been a lot of fun. It's always good to get to talk to you. Well, great. It's great. Yeah, we'll definitely have to bring you back. Um, Dr. Danny Lewis from uh, Greenville, Tennessee. And I know it's been a while since I've seen you, buddy, but there were, our paths are going to cross here again. Uh, we'll see him in person uh, very soon. And, uh, you know, I know we'll be contacting uh, you know, out there on the interwebs, on uh, on social media, just to keep connected. Uh, but thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, we'll talk very thank soon. Yeah, these days we're not any further than our Facebook message part. So I appreciate you having me on, and uh, like I said, I'll have to listen to your show. It's been a, a lot of fun. I can't wait to keep up, to keep listening. Hopefully, I get to come back someday. All right, great. Well, thank you so much, and uh, have a good night. Thanks, Mike. All righty. All righty, kid. So uh, that's my good friend there, Dr. Danny Lewis, uh, fighting the good fight out there in uh, Greenville, Tennessee. And, uh, you know, obviously all, all of our uh, thoughts and prayers are out there and people who are uh, suffering from the flooding out there and uh, in uh, Tennessee land out there. And if you're following, good following on the news there. And uh, there's been a lot of talk here on Block Talk Radio as well uh, as far as people that know people down there. And uh, so uh, we're certainly thinking of you. Uh, so that ends here at my show here this evening. And uh, my next show will be on uh, Thursday, May 13th, 2010, at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm very excited to uh, welcome uh, medical student and video blogger. That's right, video blogger, uh, Brian Colligan. And uh, he is a medical student, I believe, up there in New York State. His the blog is called Becoming a Doctor. And uh, you can get a link there on DrAnonymous.com and what he's been doing. And he has been video blogging his third year of medical school as he's going through his rotations. I know, very exciting. So I had to get him on the show, and uh, we'll talk about that. And on May 20th, um, and I think he just left my chat room, but I think he was in there, our good friend uh, Larry Bauer from the Family Medicine Education Consortium. He recently contacted me uh, to uh, do a uh, do a talk about social media this fall, and we'll talk about it then. But uh, he has really uh, <laughs> he has some great ideas about how how uh, family docs like myself and uh, Dr. Danny Lewis can uh, get the word out on uh, family medicine. So, so that's my show here for this evening. Just to let people know, I am going to put it out on Twitter as well uh, that uh, I'm going to be doing a little post show here. In case people care or are interested, first for a little bit, I'll be going on to DrAnonymous.tv, DrAnonymous.tv, to do a little bit of a post-show, just to reach out to all of you out there who are listening to me on the interwebs. So, uh, so that ends here my show here this evening. There's going to be no closing song. I will just say good night, everybody, and uh, we'll talk to you very soon. Uh, we'll see you later. Bye-bye.